To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it. from Isaiah chapter 40 chapter 40 verses 18 to 31 Isaiah 40 verse 18 page 724 in the Pew Bibles in this passage Isaiah is trying to describe the everlasting God To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens, who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. May the Lord lift up, lift us up on his wings as the mighty eagle this evening. Amen. joined us for the first time, we are in a series of messages on the Ten Commandments. 
I've been here nearly 21 years. Never before have I preached specifically on the Ten Commandments. And tonight we look at the second of them. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20? You'll find this on page 78, if you're using the Pew Bible. And we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6, which make up for what we call the second commandment. My subject is, do you wish God were different? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment. Do you wish God were different? Now you may say, well, I don't believe in God at all. But let's assume that there is a God and that God is the God of the Bible. And the God who is revealing himself here in these words to the people of Israel. Are you happy about God being just like that? Or do you wish that he were different? Now, I speak on this subject partly because or mainly because the text calls for it, but also because there are two kinds of people here tonight, and I don't know which you are. One, there are those, if honest, would change God if they could. They would say, yes, I believe you're there, and, and I like this about you. And I like that about you, but I don't like this, and I don't like that. And so there are those who would change God in some way if they could. There are those here tonight who love God for being just like he is. That they wouldn't change anything about him. You know, I find myself wanting to say to God, Lord, I love you. I love you for being just like you are. You say, well, why would you say this to him? Well, one reason I say it to him is because he likes it. He likes that. It affirms him for being just like he is. Can you think of anything nicer to have than to have something like this? Can you think of anything nicer than this? If someone were, say, just were to say to you, I like you just like you are. That's rather nice, isn't it? I haven't heard it lately, but it's, it's nice to have somebody say that. Of course, if one of you said it, I would say, well, you don't know me. You don't know me. But it's, it's a wonderful thing 
if someone who gets to know you a little bit and, and they would say, I like you just like you are. That's something that your wife or your husband would rather hear than anything. If you could say it and mean it. Bill, when's the last time Rachel said that to you? Don't answer. Mick, when's the last time Hazel said that to you? Hazel, when's the last time Mick said it to you? You know, but we love that, don't we? To be accepted just like we are. And love for being just like we are. Now, I can tell you in reverse, are you ready for this? God loves you just like you are. He accepts you just like you are. And I don't know of anybody else like that who accepts me just like I am and loves me just like I am. You know, that is almost overwhelming because I can think of so many things about me that I know are not nice. I know that. And God knows those things are there. God knows those things are there. But you know what? First of all, he made us. He's the one that chose our parents for us. And he remembers that we are dust. He loves us. He loves us just like we are. If we can, in turn, say to him, Lord, I love you just like you are, it affirms him. And so I say it to him because I know he likes it. But I also say it to him because it's true. You say, well, how could you say that? When God lets something happen that you know is not pleasant. There are people here tonight who are suffering. There are people here tonight who have had things happen to those special to him. They're hurting. And they're struggling with this. Just as I said this morning, a lady from Ireland who heard me on the radio last week, the program, we're calling it God Meant It For Good because I'm preaching through the life of Joseph on Sunday nights. I'm not doing it here. I preached from this pulpit 15 years ago, but the tapes were using them and going out all over Britain. And I get a letter from a lady who says last October her 15-year-old 15 15-year-old son on his bicycle killed by a drunken driver. And... But I could say God meant it for good. It got her attention. And so she wants to put that one to me. And you know, we've all got a story to tell. You say, well, why do you love God for being just like he is? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, when his Holy Spirit is on me in great power, and I don't say this happens to me every day, but... I've had touches of it. Just enough that when God is there so powerfully, and I'm just filled with his goodness and conscious of him, I feel it so much. And I can see that God is pleased with himself. And when his spirit fills me to worship him, I feel toward God as he feels toward himself. And so I know that it's true. So in those moments when I don't feel that touch, 
and he hides his face. And I don't feel his presence. I know that it's still true. And I also know that if I will wait a while, there will be an explanation for everything. Sometimes you get an explanation quickly why God allowed this or that. On other things, we wait a long time to get the explanation. I referred to it this morning again. I've mentioned it two or three times lately. Something happened to me uh, 34 years ago that was most painful, and it has not left for 34 years. Only this summer, only this summer did I see how good and right this is. God could have told me 33, 34 years ago, but he didn't. But this summer, I'm convinced, I'm convinced it was wonderful. So God doesn't always explain himself immediately. But I've learned to lower my voice and wait a while. Sooner or later, sooner or later, there will be an explanation. All right, two categories. Those who aren't happy with the God of the Bible, they like some things. For example, they like the fact that he is loving. They like the fact that he is merciful. But they don't like the fact that he punishes sin. And they don't like it that he lets things happen that aren't very nice. And so they would love to create the perfect God, the perfect God. They believe that, and some of you are like that, if you could just change this or just change that, God would then be perfect. But you see, those who love God like he is believe that he is perfect. That there's nothing about him that could be improved. And I'll tell you something about God in case you wondered. He did not make himself perfect. He already was. He did not make himself like he is. He's always been as he is. He didn't say within himself, I think I will start being a God of love. Or from now on, I'm going to be a God who is all powerful. Or from now on, I'm going to be a God who can be everywhere at the same time, omnipresent. No, God didn't decide to be this way. This is just the way he is. This is the way he is. And, you know, when I've had that touch of God on me, and I say it doesn't happen to me every day, but I've had it once in a while, you know, my immediate feeling is, if you can forgive me for putting it like this, I feel that we're lucky that we've got a God like that. That's the best way I can put it. I just think, wow, and you really are like this. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. Well, the first three of the Ten Commandments are letting us see just a little bit what God is like. Not that the next seven don't do it, but the first three focus on his character, his person. And you see, these commands are deep teaching. In a sense, they're spoon-feeding Israel. 
And yet, they're so profound. They're so deep. Now, the thing is that Israel was a redeemed community. The word redeemed means that they had been bought back. And God loved the people of Israel. And they knew God, but only just. They knew God, but only just. Let me ask you, how well do you know God? Really? How well do you know him? How well would you like to know him? How deeply is it burning in you that you would just love to know him better? If that desire is there, I want you to know that there's a special anointing on you. There could be no greater desire on earth. And do you know that is one thing you can mark it down. The flesh didn't put that there. The devil didn't put that there. This is one thing that if it's there, only God could put it there. And to give you that kind of thirst and longing, oh, be thankful for it. Take it with both hands and walk in every little bit of light God gives you to show you really mean it. That it's not just a yearning desire to know him better, but whenever you find something that you hadn't seen before, take it. There may be that which offends you. But remember, often God tests us by letting us be offended. Sometimes those of us who've had the most violent reaction, the most violent reaction to God or something that is supposed to represent God, later we find out, oh, I'm so glad that I climbed down and changed my tune. God wants to see how much you want him. And so sometimes, if I may put it this way, he puts the worst foot forward or gives you the most unattractive aspect of his nature, if I may put it that way, or what he knows you might look at it that way, to see whether you will still love him just like he is. Well, now, these three first commandments, we dealt with the first last week. The first refers to God's uniqueness when he said, You shall have no other gods before me. The commandment that we're looking at tonight refers to his hiddenness. That's the aspect of God we're going to look at, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. The third commandment, which we look at next week, refers to the honor of his name and how we use his name when he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. But the point that is conveyed tonight in this second commandment is his hiddenness. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters Below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
So why did God give us this second commandment? The reason is to make room for faith. It is the reason that we must have faith in order to please God. God, when he decided to make man, wanted man to love him. And after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God decreed that those who get to know him will know him by faith, F-A-I-T-H. And this second command shows the reason that he must be worshipped by faith. What do I mean by that? Well, you can't see him, can you? You cannot see God. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That means God could be in this place, and he is, and fill the atmosphere, and he's doing it, and yet you can see right through. He's invisible. Here, but you can see right through him. Why? He's not visible. But you see, an idol is visible. You can see an idol. An idol is what you can see, and that, in a moment, diverts you from looking to God. And God doesn't like that. What makes faith, faith, is that you rely on him, and yet the only evidence you've got for it is his word. His word. You say, well, why on earth would I ever want to believe in his word? I can tell you, for those who do, the reward is tremendous. You could say endless. For those who will believe the word of God, I can tell you right now, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will honor you. He will uphold you. He will never let you down. Let's put it this way. Wouldn't you agree, using the analogy I used a moment ago, the highest compliment you can give another person is to say you like them the way they are. Now, would you not also say the highest compliment a person can give you is if they believe in your integrity? Wouldn't that be right? That they trust you. They believe in your integrity. You see, the Bible is God's integrity put on the line. And for those who will believe his word, oh, he loves that. He not only loves it that you love him as he is, but he wants you to believe in his integrity. So if I say to you, I give you my word, and you say, well, that's all I need. You know, I come from the hills of Kentucky, and our motto uh, is based on the handshake. If you shook hands, uh, it was done. Uh, that's because in those days, uh, um, people couldn't write. And, and so they just shook hands. They, they couldn't sign a document. And don't laugh at me because I come from the hills of Kentucky. I tell you what, if I knew everything about you, I bet the things about you, you wouldn't want me to know. Well, anyway, that's why they shook hands, because they couldn't write. But that was it. They believed it. didn't have to sign your name. They believed it. But what if we don't even shake hands, but I just say, I believe you. Your word is enough. 
Your word is your bond. I believe it. You see, God likes that. And we have a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is very important to remember. For faith to be faith, you can't see. There's no evidence. No proof. It's just his word. And you believe his word. You say, well, why would anybody do that? Because the Holy Spirit applies the word even as I'm preaching. You see, somebody, somebody tonight will be converted. It's the Holy Spirit that does it. It's not my great intellect. It's not any education I've got. It's not my oratory. I'm just an ordinary speaker. But God will use the word. Somebody will be converted. You may not come out of hiding tonight. I hope you do. But somebody will be converted. His word does not return void. And it's the Holy Spirit that applies the word. And so you're sitting around people. They've all been saved the same way. None of us have seen God, but we've heard the word and we were gripped. And we begin to see when we trust him, he keeps his word. He said, he who believes on me will not be ashamed. And God honors those who honor him. And the highest way you honor him is to honor his word. You know, one of the hymns chosen tonight by Kieran, uh, at him just before the last one, uh, I forget the first line, but there's that phrase, I was among the mockers. I was among the mockers. You know one of the things the mockers said at the crucifixion? They said, come down from the cross so we can see and believe. Do you realize that that was idolatry in that moment? Wanting to see in order to believe. And that's what an idol is all about. An idol is something you can see. And the reason I say this command refers to the hiddenness of God. It is because this is why we have faith. An idol is something you can see. And you see, what would happen is that Israel would get impatient. And they would say, well, where is this God? And it's amazing they would ask that because he had just delivered them from the bondage of Pharaoh, and he had just enabled them to cross on the Red, cross the Red Sea on dry land, and they saw his power, and yet, after a little while, things don't go perfectly right. They begin to murmur, and they begin to complain, and they're wanting to worship an idol. Why? They say, we want something we can see. I want it before my eyes. And that's what an idol is. Well... An idol interferes with faith. And God wants to be believed on the basis of his word. I don't know if you noticed it, but in my prayer tonight, I remember praying, thank you, Lord, that we can worship you by faith. Worship you by faith. Every evening. Before I go to bed, I sing for ten minutes. Then without... Uh, Anybody in the house except T.R.'s cat, Gizmo, for the last two weeks. And Gizmo perches up on my shoulders and, and listens to me sing. I do it 15 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. Do you know why? 
You've heard this before. Forgive me for telling it again. But when Paul Cain preached that sermon on worship, I may have been the only convert. I have had nothing written me like that. One of the greatest, five greatest sermons I've heard in my life. And I felt so ashamed, so ashamed that I had seen worship as just something we kind of endure. And I decided, like Mr. George, when he, at the age of 60, realized he hadn't converted anybody to the Lord, he's going to spend the rest of his life trying to be a soul winner. Well, this, this is what that worship sermon effect had on me. You see, right now I worship by faith, and sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes I'm so tired. Sometimes my mind wanders, or sometimes everything went wrong that day. And uh, the next song will be, uh, We bring the sacrifice of praise unto the house of the Lord. And you know, I'm not particularly enjoying it. It's by faith. It's by faith. But one day, well, we're going to worship. We're going to worship in heaven. But you'll see them. You'll see them. And the reason God said you shall not make for yourself an idol is because an idol interferes. Interferes. All right, that's the first reason for this command. The second reason is because of God's intolerance for idolatry. The first, to make room for faith. Second, his intolerance for idolatry. You see, an idol was what man created. Sometimes out of wood, sometimes out of stone, sometimes they would put gold over the wood or over the stone. These idols either pointed to something in the sky, like the moon or the sun. Sometimes they worshipped the moon, they worshipped the sun. Or they would uh, make an idol of birds or something on earth or fish in the sea. Why did they do it? Oh, they said, first of all, we want to be able to see it. But also, if they made it, they can control it. They can do all the talking. There'll be no listening. And an idol is helpless. And you see, some people want a God like that. A God who you can feel sorry for. You see, the God of the Bible can do anything. He's all-powerful. He is not helpless, and he doesn't need us. Tonight, in our prayer meeting, we begin to thank the Lord for things. And to thank God the Father. And we begin to praise him that he chose me. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. The Father gave me to Jesus. I don't understand that. I don't understand that, but God didn't have to do it. You see, when you realize that God can do anything, and he's all-powerful, the reason a person wants an idol is they hate a God who can do anything. Away with him! Give me a God I can control. And an idol, you can do that. And so in Romans 1, Paul talked about worshiping 
the creature rather than the creator. God hates that. You see, God's the one that made these things. He made these things. He wants you to admire them, but not to worship them. He wants you to admire the moon and the stars, the planets, the ocean, the mountains, the beauty of nature. He wants you to admire the way he made you. The psalmist said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You stand in awe of the way we are made. His brother this evening was praying, and I heard him say, we take a magnifying glass to learn more of what is there, and what we see is that the more minute we can see, the more complex it is. The more complex it is. And the more and more we understand in the minutest way, we see how complex it is. This is because God made that he can do anything. And so an idol is erected by man which diverts from the true God. And you see, the devil is perched on every person's shoulder, hoping that one will opt for an idol. And you see, an idol is anything that diverts your focus from God. It doesn't have to be a piece of wood or a stone. It's anything that diverts you from focusing upon God. Reason number three for this second command. God wants you to know he is a jealous God. He says so. He's up front about it. It's not an attractive quality in human beings. You say, well, then I don't think it's an attractive quality in God. Well, that's your privilege. That may be one of the things that you'd like to change about him. Maybe that's where you feel he needs correcting. But listen to what he says. You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He wants you to know that is the way he is. In fact, if you've seen jealousy here below, I want you to know that's just the tip of the iceberg to how jealous, jealous can be. Because God is jealous in an infinite way. The husband may be jealous of his wife or vice versa. Uh, you've heard of the jealous lover. Uh, or maybe you're jealous of another person's success. Maybe you're jealous of another person's looks or their money. And uh, it just consumes you with hate. Maybe... You are jealous of a person and you just long for their downfall. Nothing would thrill you more than to see somebody crash. You see, jealousy is that which God says, I am. And he has a right to be as he is. And to tell us about himself, which he could have hidden. Although he is hidden in the sense that you cannot see him because he's not physically discerned. He doesn't hide this aspect of him. But what he means is that God cannot bear your putting anything before him. And it just may be that this is one of the things you don't like about him. 
Can I tell you why I like it that he's a jealous God? It's because I see he really cares about what I do. You know, the worst thing in the world is that God doesn't communicate with you and let you know what offends him. The worst thing that can happen in war is when your enemy, your enemy, is not known to you and you don't know what he's up to. Martin Luther says we must know God as an enemy before we can know him as a friend. And you see, by nature, we are at enmity with God. This is why the Bible talks about reconciliation between God and man. God is holy. We are sinners. God is holy other. He's out there different from us. We are creatures, frail, and by nature we hate the true God. We don't like him. God could in his anger and his wrath not even bother to let us know what he's like. As far as we know, Sodom and Gomorrah got no warning. God just wiped it off the map. He hated the sin so much. Didn't bother to tell them. Didn't bother to communicate. But you see, when God bothers to tell you what he's like, and he says, I'm a jealous God, you think, oh, thank you for telling me that. You see, I love him for telling me. And I love him that he's that way because it shows, it shows how much he loves me. And that means that he will go to pains to correct me so that everything he does, listen, is for my good. And everything he permits is for my good. And he does what he has to do to get my attention. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes I look up to him with tears rolling down my cheeks and I say, God, why did you do that? And I know in time it was the only way God could get my attention. And so why is he like he is? He wants to be believed without the evidence. They said, come down from the cross, we will see and believe. But that's not faith. It's not faith when you see and believe. It's faith when you believe and then see. The fourth thing that this command communicates is that God is simultaneously wrath and mercy, just and merciful. He says so. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You see, God can be summarized two ways. The Bible basically tells us two things about God. 
that is merciful and that is just. He's merciful and that is just. Uh, him we're going to sing in a few minutes. Uh, it just happened that last night, uh, about 10 o'clock, uh, where I was in my book, it came to beneath the cross of Jesus. It kind of that line, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. That's why I've chosen the hymn, because it fits with this. He's a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. What does that mean? It means he's angry with sin. And it means he must punish sin. And so, God doesn't like it that you've not lived for him. He doesn't like it that you have abused your body, the money he's let you have, the life he's given you, and you've let the years go on. And you don't care what he thinks. You've taken things into your own hands. You're an idolater. You want what you can see. You want a God that you can control. You won't have a God who holds your destiny in his hands. God's angry. He is angry. He, he created hell for the devil and his angels and for all those who side with Satan. However unfair and unjust and incomprehensible eternal punishment is to us, I guarantee you it will not be a mystery then. See, God doesn't always explain himself in advance. This is why we take him at his word and believe it. God hates sin. By the way, there are two ways God punishes sin, ultimately. By the fires of hell or the blood of Jesus. And so, two things the Bible says about God. He's just, but he's also merciful. And that means he doesn't want to punish you. The big question is, how could God be just and merciful at the same time? The answer is, he sent his son into the world 2,000 years ago, who died on a cross. And while he was on the cross, all of our sins were transferred to Jesus as though he were guilty. And if you want to know how much God hates sin, I just want you to picture what happened on Good Friday when all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, on his son, Nobody suffered that way. It was awful. His sin was on the shoulders of his son. Our sin upon his shoulders. And God punished him. And the way God can be just and merciful at the same time is that his justice was satisfied when Jesus shed his blood that way he can be merciful to you and me. But before I close, there's a fifth thing that we see from this ten, uh, second commandment, the second of the ten. 
is his concern for tomorrow's generation. Notice how he puts it. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Care for tomorrow's generation. Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? By the way, the answer to that is yes. We may ask, are we responsible for tomorrow's generation? Yes. You see, it lies within me to make it harder or easier for tomorrow's generation. And if we in Westminster Chapel can honor God and wait before him and leave a legacy to the next generation, it shows that we care about tomorrow. You see, man only wants what's for me now. God is concerned about tomorrow, and if we honor him and love him, we will worry about tomorrow. We'll worry about the future, about what happens to the church, what happens to the honor of God's name. When you think of how liberal Christianity has almost taken over, and you look for a church leader today who has a robust faith in the living God, and it's almost, forgive me for saying it, but you put me under a lie detector, this is what I believe. It's almost like looking for a needle in a haystack to find somebody who really believes this book. And if it's this way now, what will it be in the next generation? And so we're concerned about tomorrow's generation. And this is repeated in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And so we have a duty as best as we can to leave a legacy so that the third and fourth generation can rise and call us blessed. That verse means a lot more than that, of course, with the point being a care for tomorrow's generation. God is interested in the future and the legacy we can give. Well, an idol is anything that diverts us from a focus on God. Shall we bow our heads together? Is there someone here who's willing to pray and talk to this God? By the way, this is the only God there is. You might want to change him. You might want to correct this or that, but this, this, is, this is the only God there is. And I don't mean to be unfair, but whether we like him or not, this is, this is God. And you know, my job isn't really to make him look good. <laughs> he looks good to me, but I'm not a kind of public relations person who is trying to make God look good. 
so that maybe you'll like him a little better and believe on him, you might as well know what he's like. But would you be, but would you be willing to say this right now, where you are, in your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I am sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. Did you pray that prayer?